So um, as we begin, I'll just make one more reference to the raccoons in case wildlife rears its ugly head in these moments. Uh, just so you're once again aware that the raccoons are living above the, um, uh, the cutout there right behind the worths. And uh, they, uh, we've been watching weekly as we're up here studying and working uh, at what time exactly they get ornery. Um, and it's usually a little before this, but I do just set that out for you. As they start squealing and fighting, let's just keep moving. Um, we have important ground to cover, as has been read for you, um, that so far, moving through this, um, what is otherwise a, a tricky text, uh, many different interpretations can be taken regarding the text of 6, 1 through, um, uh, one through 8. And, and uh, an important piece, if I could just give you the broadest context to, to filter everything through, is to remember, this is, by, by uh, everyone's estimation, um, I say everyone, there, there's outliers, but realistically, everyone, the, the, the idea is this is a preamble to the flood event. So, so this, this, this whole section here is to be read in light of uh, the, the climax of the spread of wickedness in the earth that then causes, there's a causal relations between what we see in this introductory section of 6, 1 through 8, and then the flood that follows after. So, so that's the context that we're to begin to peel apart each piece of the text as we walk through it. In the big picture, what are we learning here? We're learning here that there is a buildup and a spread of wickedness in the earth so intense and contrary to the design of God that the flood event is to come in response to this buildup. Now, then when we see from the big picture, we begin walking uh, stride for stride through the text, we've already identified who the sons of God are. So again, that's the first kind of cryptic piece where we're reading it and we're working through it, maybe in a, a Bible reading setting or a Bible study, or we're, we're trying to work through the text and we come across something like the sons of God. Who are they? And we've already identified them. I just give you my conclusion to this point, and that is that we are to understand the sons of God in this text as the godly line of Seth. That is, they're human beings, and they are those who belong to the household of faith. And then we've identified the next piece that is the relationship in question, and that is, who are the daughters of men? So it has been read for you that the, the, the daughters of, of, of men, or the, the sons of God took the daughters of men. They took them, uh, any of whom they chose, because they simply, for what purpose do we learn that the sons of God, these men of faith, took the daughters of, uh, or the sons of God took the daughters of men to be their wives. Any whom they choose. Why? For what purposes? What discernment was on display in this choice? And there was none. The comment is simply they found them attractive. So here we have the tragedy of the text. This climactic thing that we should take very seriously. It is a word not simply then, but it is a word for us now. The sons of Seth, that is, the men who belong to the household of faith. Those of the godly line who belong to God's covenant of grace. They began to intermarry with pagan and unbelieving women. The daughters of Cain. That's a huge tragedy in the text. And we read as the text moves on that this grieved the Lord. But what was the point of grievance? 
in the, in, in, in between. And, and what is a point of grievance? And I'll say this for any who are single in here and in dating relations and considering marrying and so forth and, and where you're at in the spectrum of these relations. You have to take this text to heart. I'm urging it. I'm pushing it off of kind of my table and onto yours. You need to deal with this in dating relations and in choices you are making regarding future spouses. This grieved the Lord that men who otherwise were belonged to the household of the faith were casting off discernment based on the shallowness of a woman's appearance and choosing that to be the, the apex virtue for which they ought to marry a young woman. What of her faith? What of her people? What of her place? doesn't matter. She's hot. No good. No good. Why? Why does this grieve the Lord? Because apostasy from the faith is all too predictable. That's why it grieves him. Calvin adds here, I think, importantly. He says, quote, Those who were supposed to be children of God, called to be a special people, a holy people before God, became so perverted that there was no difference. Do you hear that? No difference between them and those who had contempt for God's majesty. No difference. Again, it's not a truth that just remains fixed in time as though we can close the door on it. And it was a moment, punctiliar moment in human history We closed the door on it because we moved on to bigger and better things, different concerns. No, it's a concern that remains. Believing young women should should marry believing young men. And believing young men should marry believing young women. Again, I, I pause just for a second to say it's not impossible Statistically speaking, for you to perform what is otherwise referred to as missionary dating. You know, hey, I just got to admit, she is attractive. And and I'm very strong in my faith. So I'm going to, you know, bring her to the Lord, i.e. to me and then to the Lord, hopefully. I'm a, our household, me, where I grew up, I was, was our family was a product of missionary dating. I'm thankful my mom and dad still married, happily so, many years later. And we grew up in the faith. Um, my dad was a believer, my mom wasn't. So again, I, I can make that argument that this can happen, but our conscience must be informed and shaped and our convictions shaped by the word of the Lord, not by a simple experience. Do we take that outlier as a prudential judgment for how we ought then behave and proceed? Answer is no. Not because we're hypocritical but because we want our conviction shaped and informed by the word of the Lord, not by some sort of justifiable experience. This is important for all of us. 
as we consider our children in the Lord, who they will marry, as we pray for their spouses, as you right now at dating age, as you consider who is it that I ought to be wed to, who is it that is eligible and ineligible. The faith is critical in that understanding and that evaluation. But back to the point here in the text that there was virtually no difference, as Calvin says. There's no difference between the sons of God and the daughters of men and all of the general, po- gen- uh, the general populace. There was no distinction of membership. Those who belong to the household of faith and those who don't. Those who prize the majesty of God and those who do not. And so this lead up and this build up and this spread of ungodliness and compromise through the life of the church brings in judgment catastrophically. Notice the response of the Lord to the compromise of the church in verse 3. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever. And then he grounds it, and we'll look at that just for a moment, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty Years. Now, again, we have arrived at yet another statement in the text that is open to several interpretations. However, I hope to persuade you that just as in the case of the sons of God and the daughters of men, if we just kind of walk through the text piece by piece, and we don't go to broader concepts and definitions first, but we just kind of handle tick for tack, piece for piece, movement for movement in the text itself, I think that it's rather accessible what God means here by withdrawing his spirit and then setting a time for 120 days for man. What does this judgment pronouncement mean? Again, I don't think it's that hard to wrap our hands around. Three steps to do so. The first steps, if, again, I say if we just walk through this, the, the text piece by piece, the first step that we need to make then is to understand who is man in this text. What is it? Look at the verse again, verse 3. Then the Lord said, so he's looking at the spread of, uh, of wickedness abroad among all. There's no distinction between those who prize uh, uh, the majesty of God and those who do not. There's, there's no distinction. So now we're shut up with all general populace. And then we hit verse 3. Then the Lord said to this generic population, my, my spirit shall not abide in man, generic, mankind, forever, for he is flesh. Our first step to understanding what this means is simply to understand that man here in the text, God is referring to mankind in general. And so he says, my spirit will not abide in mankind forever in terms of a restraining influence. You see, we experience a restraining influence now. The spirit of God who restrains man's wickedness allows him, even though he be unregenerate, to pursue common goods for common men. The rule of law is an experience of a common restraint, a common grace feature. You remember this happened earlier prior to God's announcement that this restraining influence will be withdrawn. It will be withheld. He makes this statement because we know the restraining influence was already demonstrated in the the Cainites from uh, chapter 4. You remember Cain, he was, uh, uh, he was uh, uh, banished from the believing household. He was kicked right out. Adam had to drive Cain off. Cain then took his wife with him, and then he, she bore to him a son named Enoch. And then you watch as the text develops, God gives some measure of what we call common grace to Cain and his offspring, Enoch and all that came after him. You remember the boastful, 
big bad Leroy Brown of chapter 4, who was the man Lamech, who stood there. There he was boasting over his strength and his power. And if anybody messes with me, I will crush them down sevenfold. This kind of boasting. But then you recognize there's some sort of restraining influence nonetheless. Not everyone is uh, murdering each other. And then you see not only that, is there some sort of restraining influence from them being completely evil and rivaling each other all the time where there's just sheer bloodshed, but you notice there's actually goods and production. There's herdsmen being established and large-scale cattling. Then you watch there's a development of culture and the arts and music, and all this is coming out of a very wicked city. What's to explain for that? The restraining presence and power of the Spirit of God. Not in a redeeming manner, but in a common manner. It was restraining influence among the people of Cain. What is the consequence, though, that if we consider in this text, this is what God is referring to, this restraining influence, that is, my spirit's restraining influence among mankind. I'm removing it. What are we to expect is to occur because of it? Luther then makes a sharp comment as he speaks of the consequences of withholding this restraining influence. Luther says, quote, without the Holy Spirit. And let me add to this comment from Luther. It's true now, just like it was true in this text. So please hear the comment as we conceive of it now in the grace of God. Luther says, without the Holy Spirit and with grace... Man can do nothing but sin. Do you see that? Think of that in in your own life. And in the common society that we bond together around, our civil society, the rule of law, the, the, the fair treatment of neighbor. What do we owe this to? Evolutionary development? That we just figured out it's just better if we work it out? Or is there a restraining influence among us, even if it be just commonly shared in the spirit of God, in the upholding of all things, for the good of mankind? So Luther says, without the Holy Spirit and with grace, man can do nothing but sin. And so goes on endlessly to sin and to sin. He also becomes an enemy of God. He blasphemes the Holy Spirit and he completely follows the evil desires of his heart. That is what it means for man to experience life apart from grace, apart from the Holy Spirit, continuously, perpetually doing evil. And how are we sure that this is what God is saying when he's going to to withdraw his spirit of influence and, and, and his spirit that restrains, and he's going to give man over to this sense of constant evil and wrongdoing? Well, we see it in verse 5. Look in verse 5 in the text. It follows just a little bit later in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And just as Luther said, without spirit, without grace, this is what we as mankind are. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart, not some of them, not a few of them, but every one of them, was only evil continuously. That is who each of us are, apart from the Holy Spirit and the grace of God in our lives. Again, it might not be fully manifested so that each one of us can live in society to some profit of one another. And we're not all axe murderers. But that doesn't disprove the text that the thoughts and intentions 
of the heart are still evil, driven on by self. The concept that greed is good to take advantage of our neighbor. And there are our friends. They just showed up. <laughs> I knew they would. This is exactly what we see taking place with the removal of the Spirit of God, is that man's intent is always evil. Second step, how do we understand what it is being referred to here is that man is going to receive a withdrawal of the Spirit of God and it's going to last this experience of 120 years. The second step we need to take in the text is understand the words of how it's grounded. Look at verse 3 again. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever. Again, I'm saying this is the restraining influence upon mankind that subdues his wickedness and its expressions. This spirit will not abide forever here. And he grounds it in a reason. What, 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 what is occurring? Why this pronouncement of judgment? And the language is this, for he is flesh. There's a connection between the fleshiness of mankind and the removal, or the removal of the Holy Spirit. Why? What's the connection? Well, flesh signifies that men are bound to rebellion. It speaks of our limitations and our fallibility. This fleshy character about us, the sense of our fleshiness, is not here spoken of simply in our physical attributes, but it is speaking of our rebellious nature. We are flesh. That is what we are. We have seen it again and again in the text of Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. We are flesh. That's who we are. We are fallible creatures. And this sense of fleshiness about us allows for any kind. Now, and I want to urge me, my, myself and I want to urge you as well. That, that what this means for each of us individually. And I need to take stock of this in my life. And, and, and I'm urging it for you to take stock of it in your own life as well, is what this indicates to me, what it indicates to each of us, that any kind of rebellion and trespass is possible. Any kind. And see, at times, you, you, you've thought of men in ministry at times where there's a fall in the ministry. Maybe many of you have come from churches and histories where there's been a minister up front and, and, and he, he preaches. And again, we often speak far greater than we believe. We're striving, we're growing as well as we try to lay hold of the same things that we exhort others to do. And no one is perfect. But yet this idea that men are called, ordained, and set in this place. And then people forget, the minister forgets, that he also is flesh. And that speaks to his fallibility and his ability that any rebellion is possible. Not because of everything out there in your life, but because of what's in here. Man is flesh, and we need to call that to mind. We are bound to rebellion and our thoughts and affections are entangled with the earth and often what this means for each of us. And we need to call this again to mind that the life of heaven does not excite us. We might think it does in some idea, but what about the things that are here concretely? 
that draw our hearts and minds into that dimension. The word of God that sits on our desk and the sacraments that are provided to us. These bits and pieces of heaven, do they excite us? Then how can we speak of another dimension and it excite us when the things that of that are here to nourish us and they don't get our attention at all? Thus God responds to this, our, our, our fleshiness. He says, for he is flesh. And, and so here comes the foot of judgment being dropped. So our, step, our third step in the text of understanding this statement of the Spirit of God's removal for man is flesh. That is, that is, he is rebellious, he is limited, he is fallible, and it makes any trespass possible. Therefore, the text says, his days shall be 120 years. I'm going to, it is my argument to make here in the text that when it says that the 120 years of days will exist for mankind, I would suggest to you that he's making this pronouncement from the standpoint of the pronouncement, there is 120 years left. That is, the flood will erupt upon the earth and cleanse the earth of man and his defilements after a 120-year period of patience. It was St. Augustine who wrote in The City of God, he said, quote, The years cannot be taken as foretelling that thereafter men would not live beyond 120 years. Right? Because maybe we're thinking, what it means is my spirit shall not abide in man forever. I'm going to withdraw my spirit of influence. For he is flesh, because he's given to rebellion, and every trespass is now possible for him. He is just wanton. So then, for his day shall be 120 years. He can only live this kind of life, this wantonness, for 120 years. So therefore, we look and, on the Today Show, and we look at the birthdays, and we're like, whoa, that lady is 125. How, does that, how can that be? Or we're thinking, oh, they're 104, and like, of course they're only going to make it 104 because we know they can't live 120 or longer. We have it in Genesis 6. So, so how are we handling this idea of 120 years? Augustine's point still stands. Years cannot be taken as foretelling that thereafter men would not live beyond 120 years. Why? Since we find that After the flood, as before the flood, men lived even beyond 500 years. And you'll find that further in the genealogy if you stroll forward in the book of Genesis. I think it's chapter 11. You'll get the Shem and his descendants. And you'll see in there, indeed, many people living well beyond the 120-year mark. So what do we make of this 120 years? But again, I would suggest that it's 120-year period of patience. The spirit will be withdrawn. Man will be left to his deserts, and judgment will rain down upon him in catastrophic measure after a 120-year period of God's patience. The question we need to ask just briefly is, why patience at all? Perhaps you can think of it in terms of your own relation to God. If you are right now in rebellion to God, that is, you feel a sense of his urging, you, you, you have a sense of the moral law. By natural law, you know the word of God. 
it's drawing you toward this aching conversation for you to admit and repent and turn and resist, endeavor after new obedience and lay hold of Christ afresh. But yet this call is constantly being pushed back in your list of priorities. Maybe it makes you feel weird to admit your repentance. It just is psychologically hard for you because there's a number of excuses why you find that you cannot. A number of reasons. It just keeps getting pushed back, keep getting pushed back, keep push, getting pushed back. Have you ever stopped to think, why does God show me patience? We would ask of the people of the text as we watch them, but what about watching us? Why would God show patience to me, a rebellious child at all? Why don't I just walk right out and be killed. I think for two reasons. One that is particular to each of us as we relate to the patience of God in our lives and the second one that relates to Noah particularly here in the text and the first one and I'll give it to you to think and ponder on this because it shows you that God is inclined toward mercy and pity. You see, Think of your patience, God's patience towards your rebellious heart in terms of what it says about God as he looks at you. What does it mean? Why is he showing me patience at all in my acts of rebellion? Because it shows that he is inclined to mercy and pity as he has shown you in the gospel that he freely offers you in Jesus Christ. The second piece of why there's patience at all, particular to this text, is this 120-year patience that is going to be experienced upon a rebellious mankind is for Noah and his family. That's the second reason, for two reasons. Because, number one, it shows that God is inclined toward mercy and pity. This is his inclination. This is his countenance. And secondly, it shows patience for Noah and his family because they found favor in the eyes of the Lord. If we were to understand the period of 120 years as patience and not naming your dates, that is, I think Pastor Dan has family that has all lived almost 120 years old on his mom's side. Um, A slight joke, but they're old. Um, And uh, over 100, right? So if, if we say, well, we're not learning much about them living a really long time in light of their death, in light of Genesis 5, so why is 120 years period, how do we know that it's indeed a period of patience? Okay, so it's not man's date, but is it patience? Because Peter helps us. In 1 Peter 3.20, the apostle says this, quote, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, now get this, listen to Peter's comment, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. A 120-year period of patience and how many repented? A few. How many laid hold of Christ through faith and the promises offered them regarding the flood? Eight. Eight persons. The time of patience that was shown to mankind, though God is inclined to mercy and pity toward man, man remains stiff in his rebellion. 
Is this you? A God who is inclined toward you, toward mercy and pity in his relations. Finally, Moses provides us with a historical context. This is where we'll end our few moments together. Right now, we'll, we'll, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start at the plane is high. We're at 30,000 feet. I'm going I'm to start lowering it down, and we're going to land it. But, you know, sometimes, have you ever been on a plane? You think, oh, we're landing, and it takes a long time. <laughs> you circle back around. Remember, it's not always an opening at the airport. You got to circle back around, come back. Well, no place to land. Hang on. No, we really will start descending. We will. Um, but he provides us with a historical marker here that's important in the text, and this is the final piece of our time. Notice the historical marker in verse 4. He says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. Before and afterward of what? Before and after what? The sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. You see... Depending on how you read the text and work through the text and walk through the text, you notice the Nephilim here, or as maybe you've studied or read or heard or so forth, um, it's translated the giants. And there's a definite article in there. You you notice, do you see it? You'd see it in the Hebrew the same. There's a definite article at the beginning of verse 4, so it says the Nephilim. It's not like some Nephilim. Uh, Nephilim, it's the Nephilim, and, and that helps you understand something about it, that this is a distinct group of people, the Nephilim, or around. Or it could be translated the giants, as it is translated in the Greek version of the Old Testament. It's translated giants, and what are they appearing here in the text for in the original readers, and unto us is how we receive it. They are serving simply as a historical marker for the events that mentioned around them in the text. Do you see the Nephilim explaining their origins or their identity is not what the text is about. Read it with me now. If you just walk through the text, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, withholding influence, gone, for he is flesh, given over to vice. His day shall be this period of 120 years, and then it's catastrophe time. And just for you to kind of calculate, those who are, who are receiving the text, is for you to calculate the Nephilim, the giants, the ones, the, the, this distinctive peoples, the Nephilim, were on the earth in those days. It's a historical marker. Not that we would plummet the depths of their identity in this particular text as though it is a great mystery. Rather, it's a historical marker. They were there in those days. And they were there after those days. Which days... The days when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and bore children with them. You see, if we were to answer the question, who are they then? Who are the Nephilim? There's only one other reference to them in the Old Testament, and that is Numbers 13.33. That's when the Hebrew spies were going out to spy out the land, and they looked over there and they're like, whoa, too tall a people over there. We appeared like grasshoppers to them. This language of, whoa, those are big guys. It's the language of the Nephilim or over there. It appears in Numbers 13, 33. So who do we understand them to be by that reference and this historical reference that these individuals were there on the earth in those wicked days? We're simply to understand them as a very specific and well-known group of distinctively large stature that were on the earth during the time 
not the result of, but during the time that the sons of God were intermarrying with the daughters of men. They're not hybrid offspring from angels and, and men. Um, uh, neither are they the offspring from the Sethites and the Canaanites. They're not the resultant offspring of them either. They're historically a marker in the text for you to understand the Nephilim. No other, not a few people, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Which days? The days when this catastrophe was taking place between the sons of God and the daughters of men. If we translate or we interpret it this way in our conclusion, then the point of the text remains coherent. It remains the same. What is the point of the entire text? That the spread of wickedness and apostasy is greatly increasing among mankind. And God is going to bring judgment both in the days of Noah and in the days ahead. You see, judgment comes to wickedness. And so here God cleanses the earth the first time because of the wickedness getting so increased and spread abroad. Then there's this, but there's this warning and period of patience. That's where you reside today, is in a period of patience, a period of repentance, because God's disposition toward you will be one of compassion and mercy and pity as he has shown you in the work of Jesus Christ. If you remain hardened, your repentance is never nigh. You continue down the path of your rebellion during a period of patience. You will face catastrophic judgment. How are you responding to God's patience in your life? Is it one that's nourishing and renewing? Or are you antagonistic with it? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this text, a picture of your mercy and compassion, and yet your justice. This must meet unrighteousness and rebellion. I pray that you would help us to see our sin, proclivities towards ungodliness, by constitution, by family history, by personality by influence of the flesh, that we'd remember that each of us is but flesh. Anything is possible in sin or rebellion. Let us flee to Christ and so be nourished and so be saved. Let us be a repentant people that turn our faith to Christ as its sole object of salvation. Thank you for his provision. Let us lay hold of him through faith as indeed God, by your grace, through your spirit, you lay hold of us. Let us take serious the sin account of those who are dating at age of dating or considering dating and are considering spouses. Let them take heed to the word of the Lord regarding apostasy. In Christ Jesus' name I pray. Amen.